Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, longtime commentary contributor, former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, Tevi Troy. Hi, Tevi. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Tevi is on today because this is the uh, 10th Yortzeit, as you might say, of um, Ed Koch, who uh, uh, arguably... um, was a key figure in the turnaround of urban America that took place uh, actually after the end of his mayoralty uh, in the 1990s and beyond. And we are now heading back into the slough of despond from which he helped remove us. And we're going to talk about Ed Koch and his legacy, which is the subject of uh, Tevi's piece in the current issue of commentary available at commentary.org. But before we do that, Tevi, uh, you as an official of the Department of Health and Human Services uh, in the Bush administration uh, watched with interest, and we've talked to you about it, the behavior of the uh, Trump and Biden administrations in relation to the coronavirus and its use of emergency powers there, too. And we got this uh, very peculiar announcement on Monday from the White House that they were ending the state of emergency uh federal state of emergency in relation to covid but not now they would be doing it in may so they're announcing an end to the state of the covid emergency three months from now when if you actually think that the covid emergency is continuing today you could no in no way shape or form actually say well it's going to be over in 3 months so we can end it then if the emergency continues you don't know when it's going to end if it's over it's over and biden had declared the pandemic over though not officially in an interview with 60 minutes on september 14th 2022 which was four and a half months ago so four and a half months ago the president said the pandemic is over january 30th the White House announces that the that the uh, COVID emergency will be over in three and a half months. And uh, can we discuss what, Tevi, what a state of emergency is technically? Like if you were in a position where there's some horrible health crisis or, you know, you know leak things leak in the whatever it is or COVID, obviously an emergency is a declaration of immediate need for immediate action to deal with a crisis situation that requires the suspension of certain kinds of existing rules and things like that in order to do triage right that's exactly right the federal government is a large and unwieldy bureaucracy And in certain cases, when there is an emergency, the federal government is allowed to circumvent certain rules and make distribution of payments easier without having to go through the normal rigmarole. Now, the Biden administration is facing conflicting tensions on this, conflicting interests. Number one is they want to say, hey, COVID is over and we ended it and pat themselves on the back. That was the impetus behind Biden's statement on 60 Minutes back in the late summer. At the same time, they don't want to recreate these limits on payment systems because they like to spend money and they like giving out money and and it'll make it harder. And there will be some people who have to pay things out of pocket that they didn't have to pay out of pocket before, specifically in Medicaid. So the Biden administration wants to have the state of emergency capacity to spend money as it was doing beforehand, while still at the same time receiving kudos for ending the state of emergency. Uh, this is so amazing. supremely cynical. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely disgusting. Thank you. Which is why I don't. I, I'm. I don't think if it would be a dereliction if Congress sits on its hands and waits for this thing to passively sunset in May, May, on May 11th. They need to take this power back. 
the Republican National Committee Research Department, which is a pretty good Twitter account. It just puts videos up. It doesn't, you know, color them, um, puts up this clip of Joe Biden asked, what's your uh, decision to end the COVID emergency? And the president says the COVID emergency will end when the Supreme Court ends it, which I think is reasonable to infer an admission against interest here that the state of emergency, as you say, Tevi, exists to justify policy prescriptions that have no legal predicate. The administration is arguing before the Supreme Court that it can put masks on people on trains and planes, that it can forgive student loans. As you say, Medicare's backdoor expansion is threatened, which doesn't have any legal predicate. Um, They like Title 42. Republicans never have liked Title 42, but no one wants to pass it into law. So let's just keep this thing going for as long as it can. It's an abuse of authority. And now the administration is talking about, oh, maybe we can declare a public health emergency on abortion. Abortion rights. So anybody anywhere experiencing some sort of health related distress that has a political dimension, we're going to talk about public health emergencies now. What's next? Salt, red meat. Think about, you know, expand your your terms. Maybe Republicans want to do this for gender affirming care. There's an epidemic of of gender affirming care out there that needs to be stopped because it's a public health emergency. This is imperious. This is an abuse. It must end. Well, this, Look, and this no, you're is, not this, wrong. This kind of thing happens all the time when you have a bureaucracy that is so large and so cumbersome and you need ways to circumvent it if you want to get things done. And then you create this backdoor, as you call it, then there's an incentive to keep the backdoor open as long as possible. Well, and the never let a crisis go to waste mantra, which has, I, I think, been embraced more consistently on the left than on the right in recent years, although there are episodes where the right has done this as well. That has been, I mean, we were all talking about this at the very beginning of the pandemic, the first lockdowns were all like, you know, we've got to watch how power creeps and expands and and how more and more things will be included under the rubric of an emergency. And I think there's actually a very organized, particularly in the public, in the sort of activist public health arena in this country, there's a very organized effort to declare everything and anything a public health emergency to have that bureaucratic overreach and to have those additional powers and to have access to additional funds, gun violence, uh, um, you know, all kinds of stuff in terms of like, um, as Noah said, abortion rights in particular. But with Biden, the other thing that's important to, to note, and John mentioned this in a great piece in the New York Post yesterday, federal workers who tend to vote Democratic love the emergency because that gives a lot more leeway about whether they, for one thing, have to show up into show up at the office every day and do their jobs or they can stay at home, whether they have access to certain benefits that, that exist under a COVID emergency that will disappear when it is when it is declared over. Those are important, but the trickle down effects of those in cities like Washington and other places where there's a large federal government presence are real. Our downtown looks like a wasteland right now. And even the mayor who's, you know, tends not to to say such things out loud was is begging the federal government to make workers go back into the office to kind of revitalize downtown. It might or might not happen. But there are all kinds of second and third order effects from these from this emergency decision making that have gone on for far too long. Well, hey, I, yeah, go, 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 I, go ahead. Sorry. The, the, the other uh, piece of this that I find so offensive is that for the entirety of the pandemic, uh, public health officials told us that there was this pervasive sense of uncertainty. That's what they used as the most powerful tool that you, you just can't say and you can't say what the future is going to bring because uh, you know, the, the virus can go this way and that way. And everyone there's and there's no there's no way to predict it. Donald Trump was was criticized for for putting actual uh, uh, for suggesting end dates uh, uh, on when things should open back up. He said uh, for Easter, then the next Easter. Then, um, he had uh, he he had different uh, motivations uh, for, for wanting to do it. But um so the idea now that 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 Biden is looking into a crystal ball and saying, yes, the emergency will be over at X date in the future um, really gives the lie to to the 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 most powerful tool that that public health officials had used throughout this. Well, Abe, the the statement itself that the White House put out gives the lie. In other words, the statement says that the covid emergency is over. Let, let, let's be clear about this. It says what we want is an orderly transition out of the emergency status. Emergencies end immediately upon the conclusion of the emergency. By definition, this is like how the language, the English language works. An emergency is a disruption. And so it's like if your leg is broken... The minute that your leg heals, you take the cast off, 
right? The emergency is you have to immobilize your arm with this plaster, you know, a horror that you can't, you can't sleep and you can't do this. And the minute that you can, you go to the doctor and he chisels the thing off because it is the disruption. It is the bringer of chaos. The White House said in its statement that it was concerned about the chaos that would occur upon the emergent upon a too quick emergence out of the emergency status but the emergency is the chaos and what we want and not just what we want but what what this means is ordinary conventional <laughs> day-to-day existence is you know, when it stops raining, you put the umbrella yeah, away. It's like it's like keeping firemen just dousing a building for weeks on end, right? For fear right. of of get pushing them on un- unemployment, right? I mean, an orderly transition out of this fire. Yeah, they they say that they're concerned that it will there will be chaos in the healthcare system. Let's literally, the White House says it. Let's let's parse this out, okay? Uh, Tevi, as somebody who actually helped administer and oversee whatever could be construed as a national healthcare system. Um, The whole idea is that the healthcare system was in chaos and triage and under pressure, unprecedented pressure, because there were a lot of people who were going to the hospital and getting sick and dying from COVID, more than a million of them. And uh, we did not have the resources to handle this or, you know, emerge. In fact, we did actually emergency room capacity, despite uh, despite the kind of horror stories that were being told in the early days of the pandemic was never was never reached uh, or, you know, hospital bed capacity was never reached in the United States. We did have enough uh, capacity, but nonetheless, too many people to cure, too many people to help, you know, for the first six months, nobody could get a test because there weren't enough to all of that stuff. And and the healthcare workers were exhausted because they had a lot of people to treat. And now they have way fewer people to treat. And when we look at the numbers of COVID cases in, you know, that are issued by healthcare, uh, you know, by the New York Times or whatever, um, as Liana Wen, who was a famous uh, COVID hawk, uh, has said the numbers really have shifted into people who come to the hospital with other things but also have COVID and are now listed as COVID patients, which we always suspected might have been the case in a lot of uh, the n- reporting in the first couple of years because there were financial incentives to claiming COVID patient status. But there are fewer people with COVID. There are fewer people dying of covid there are fewer people you know in a crisis situation because of covid the healthcare system is not going to be in chaos from lifting an emergency if there is no emergency anymore help what do they mean then let's so tevi help us translate what do they mean when they say oh this could be chaos if we end the emergency status too soon Look, there's two things going on. Number one is the federal government does need something called surge capacity. When there is an emergency, it happens with floods, it happens with pandemics. And in surge capacity, this is where you have to direct resources to where they need to go in a very short period of time. That emergency is really not something that they're worried about. That's not the chaos they're worried about. What they're worried about is what Noah talked about, which is the policy changes that they don't know how to deal with unchanging at this moment, Title 42 among them, but also the backdoor Medicaid expansion. And I think they want some time to figure out what they're going to do about the policy changes that they were able to effectuate via the COVID emergency. I don't think this is any more about surge capacity because that that's long gone. And as you said, we basically did have the capacity in, in, in many cases. So I think they're using this myth of the existing emergency to protect their policy preferences for a little while longer while they figure out what's too damn bad. What crap? We have the, coming in hot. It's, there's, <laughs> yeah, and it's up a piece with this psychological battle that we've had to be to spectate among people who cannot handle the restoration of the status quo ante, normal, which is so atrocious, which was so taxing, which wasn't good enough. And now we have the administration psychologically grappling with the prospect of having to return to something resembling a, a social contract that we all signed on to. But That's your problem. 
I but love remember, how Noah acts like I'm justifying this when I'm just no, explaining Teddy, what they're I'm thinking. not yelling at you. You're <laughs> just uh, you're just in also, my line of fire. I apologize. But there's also there's also you know th- this is this could also be seen as an expression of defeat slash disappointment because if you re- if you remember back to the early days of the pandemic when all the states were kind of figuring out their their state level responses, we had a lot of crazy coming out from from bureaucrats in public health and in, in state governments. I remember Hawaii issued this report about all the things that COVID lockdowns would also usher in, like, you know, a, a basic universal basic income and, you know, all kinds of crazy schemes that had lain dormant when there wasn't an emergency suddenly started, they hoped, to flower you know, fast forward to where we are today, most of those schemes were A, never popular with the American people, B, totally uh, wildly economically irresponsible, and C, still not popular with the American people. So we, there, I guess we could give them a little 48-hour mourning period, all the things they tried to do that blew up in their faces. And and I'll add to this, school closures, I think, are part of this as well. Like there's been a lot of retconning of what's actually happened in reports about how far behind kids really were and, and the mental health impact on them. All of this is an effort to act like, well, we just we had no other choice. We had to do this. So extending the emergency, we have no other choice. Mm -hmm. Is it not politically foolish? Uh, Just I'm sorry, I'm not monopolizing this, but wouldn't it be politically the smarter thing to do to take a victory lap? Like instead of just, you know, mourning, being so miserable over this. No, we got you out of this thing. No, you're welcome. No, it would not. And I want to sort of lay this out. When the White House said on Monday, you know, uh, we're doing this because we want to spare the healthcare system from chaos and uncertainty, Abe's word, the, the White House used the word uncertainty, not only for healthcare workers and frontline this, but for tens of millions of Americans. That's the giveaway. So there are 330 million people in the United States. What does tens of million mean as a as a as a sort of you know rounding number, right? So 30, 40 million. So you're talking about 10% of the population of the United States. This is directed at every single person who would wear a mask forever if they could, or who will profit from a world in which maybe everybody would wear a mask forever. And who is that? That is federal workers who are allowed to stay home rather than go into the office. It is teachers whose work day becomes conditional uh, on the basis of outbreaks of flus and RSV and other things that aren't COVID, okay? These are people who believed, as Christine said, that we were entering a new normal in which the rules of conventional American life were going to change. You weren't going to have to go into an office and have your work overseen by someone who might not like it if at like 1.30 you watched so you know you watched uh, The Price is Right or t- took a nap. Um, not that, by the way, I think it depends on who what, what workforce you are and where you work, but we're talking about overwhelmingly government workers, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, and people who are worried because they're not going to be able to get free COVID tests, which is also which which the White House may also mentioned in their statement. Now, you don't need to test for COVID anymore. Let me just lay this out for you. Why don't you need to test for COVID anymore? Well, everybody's gotten COVID, and the new variant eludes the vaccine's um, efficacy. So you'll either get it, or you won't. You'll either have it or you won't. Putting on a mask isn't going to prevent the spread of this new thing. Nobody needs to test for COVID. You'll know if you have it or you don't have it. You already had it. 80, 90% of people have had it, whatever. COVID testing should stop anyway. The numbers are meaningless because the new variant isn't fatal. That's why Leanna Wen wrote this piece saying we need to get rid of these counts and again she was like a covid like she was like people was like i won't see my parents because i'll gal kill them you know she she wrote op-eds like that for two years she's like we we have to stop testing because we're getting these numbers and they're driving us crazy they don't want to stop testing they want to hand out free tests forever but I guess they're only going to be able to do it for three more months. And that's the uncertainty. It is uncertainty 
for 10% of the population who have been ruling the emotional roost in the country for two and a half years, terrified of disease, unwilling to take risks, you falsely using threats to pe people who are not threatened, meaning children, as a weapon and a tool to get their way. And that's a constituent group of the Democratic Party now. There is not a single person among those tens of millions who is a Republican voter. Is there? Could there be? I'm not saying, by the way, that Republicans aren't scared of COVID and Republicans wouldn't wear masks and Republicans won't stay inside if they're sick or whatever. That's all. People who are ideologically committed to this, aside from Christine's, you know, universal basic income or the child credit that lifted tens of millions of children out of just to clarify it's, i don't like universal basic income i know, so I know. no <laughs> I, I understand that or 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 the child tax right. credit that right. lifted everybody out of poverty for a year or whatever um ideological ideological inclinations have been a predictor of behavior throughout this pandemic it was it was an indicator of whether you stayed home it was an indicator of whether you were interested in uptaking in the vaccines or you opposed mask mandates it's an indicator yeah. of whether you accept that it's, it's been an indicator just a freedom versus safety, real yeah. first principles thing has been a metric that you could observe and and, and was a predictor of behavior patterns. And well, and certain groups got a real taste for political power, which they hadn't had for a while. And of course, it's a new year. I get to do at least one rant against the teachers unions. But if you look at how the teachers unions, they're, how close they are to the Biden administration. Remember Randy Weingarten, one of the first visitors to the Biden White House when he was sworn in. Um, they have been, you know, hand in pocket working. They worked with the CDC. They, the teachers unions felt got this taste of power during the lockdowns, and they don't want to give it up. And they are one of the major donors to the Democratic Party. So in upcoming elections, I, I mean, they, they now want that leverage to continue to, to give them what they want for their constituents, which is the teachers, not the students. The students don't really matter in their, <laughs> it's the teachers. I mean, I hope this means that this is not the end of all rants against the teachers union. No, for the oh, no. Of 2023. <laughs> oh, no, I have plans. Yes. Fair. Well, no, but <clears throat> to get back to, to connect that to what I was saying uh, and to prove uh, the point that I was I was trying to make, uh, there was that uh, stunning moment in the first couple of months of the Biden administration. I'm trying to remember what the what the cause of it was. When Rochelle Walensky, the newly installed head of the CDC, made some liberalizing announcement of some sort, I don't remember what. In and then <clears throat> she <clears throat> had a come to Jesus meeting, not with her as Jesus. It was nationwide. Randy vaccine Weingarten, mandates. excuse me. Nationwide vaccine mandates. Nationwide vaccine mandates. How did she had a, teachers? Right. She had a come to Jesus meeting with. Randy Weingarten, in which Randy Weingarten said, no, you will not say that. Go, go out there and say the opposite. And also true of spacing. Did. And also true of spacing in classrooms, oh, six, like the six, six feet, feet versus yeah. 12 feet. That's yeah. right, right. Every time Randy yeah. Weingarten was in there making the case that- it, And it, she did. So why did she, right? Biden got 81 million votes. What, what Randy Weingarten represents, you know- Money. For- she represents not, a lot of money for the Democrats. She represents for a Biden. lot of money. They and, gave a ton of money to, to Biden. And that is the Democratic, that was the Democratic base of 2020. This is this is my fundamental argument. The Democratic base, base issues shift, and this is really going to be an evanescent issue because it won't exist anymore. But the issue was, are you a COVID hawk or are you a COVID dove? Do you believe that we need to remain sort of like in a uh, position of uh, threat and recoil and, you know, isolation for as long as it takes until everybody in the country is vaccinated before you could even take a breath or go to the beach or something like that? If you are that person, you voted for Biden. Well, so this is why I don't understand whether why this is so politically valuable. It's like the Democratic equivalent of stop the steal. It's a it's the price of admission into Democratic politics in the national field, but it turns off general election voters. Right. Well, you think so? Politicians may make stupid mistakes, but they do know, and maybe you're right that what they know is they will not be held liable by their people for uh, stretching this out. Everybody who has decided that this is sick and that we went the wrong in some ways, I mean, depends on where you are on this on the on the continuum here. 
you know, we went the wrong way. We shouldn't, you know, from from the most extreme, which is that, you know, the vaccines have have microchips in them and are killing people and are monstrous to just say people like us who are like enough with the masks already. You're crazy. Like this is it, clearly they don't work and stop it, you know, whatever. Like that, that, that continuum of people, they don't speak to those people. This is not about any of those people. This is about people for whom this is a primary or secondary issue still. And maybe that's stupid, but, um, you know, you got to give politicians some credit for understanding the people that they're trying to appeal to. Like they, you know, they, they, this is their business. We're, we're watchers and commentators. And obviously like in any industry, you can make, you know, crystal pepsi and and be stupid and lose tens of millions of dollars or you can be pepsi and figure out an ad slogan that takes uh market share away from coke like you know it obviously you you take risks whatever decision you make uh the other thing we haven't talked about is that this was bizarrely an effort to forestall republican action on the hill and that does speak to Noah what you were saying because they're sufficiently concerned about Republicans making you know essentially bringing to the floor of the of the House and then I guess seeing if they can do something in the Senate for an immediate cessation. Of, well, the Senate of, already passed a resolution in twenty <clears throat> twenty, but a resolution, not not litigation. Yeah, Go a ahead, resolution sorry. ending the public health emergency. Nancy Pelosi never put it to her members to a vote. So we don't know how the House would have voted, but it's reasonable to in, infer that the House would approve such a resolution. And the only reason the Democratic Senate wouldn't do it again is partisan reasons, and they can leverage right. that, and they should. Right. So they, they're worried enough that they wanted to do something to preempt the Republican talking point and say, no, no, it's all fine. <laughs> the COVID emergency is going to end. Don't worry. You don't need to vote this way or, you know, or to give Democrats in the House or whoever, or Democrats in the Senate, sufficient cover not to have to worry about this. Maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. But this was a political, you said this yesterday, you know, this was a political response to political pressure from Republicans on the Hill. It didn't come out of nowhere. But So rationally, the thing to do would be to preempt it by saying, you know, it's over, which is what Biden had said. Let's, final point I want to make, then we can move on was the thing you mentioned that Biden said, this will be over when the Supreme Court says it's over. What? I don't care what's before the Supreme Court or not before the Supreme Court. Like, somebody put this guy out to pasture. These are executive actions taken unilaterally by the executive branch of the United States using emergency powers. Maybe the Supreme Court can end them or not end them. But the Supreme Court, you know, who's going to do that? The marshal of the Supreme Court is going to go arrest Trump, and then he's going to de declare that the COVID emergency is over. This and is then he's preposterous. Find the yeah, they'll find the leak. This is this is preposterous. Biden ends it or doesn't end it. I think he needs John a schoolhouse rock to stand up and say episode. we arrogate to ourselves the power to suspend the executive branch's ability to function or act in an emergency. No, he's precisely, doing yeah. But this is what he does. He he overreaches his authority, his constitutional authority, and then waits to get the smack on the hand from the Supreme Court. He's done this with, you know, rent abatement. He's done this with them. There have been a lot of things where overreach during the COVID epidemic, he's been smacked down by the federal courts and the Supreme Court. So he seems to think this is the way it worked. That's why I said he needs a schoolhouse rock episode to kind of remind him of the branches of government. Like, no, Mr. President, here's what you can and can't do. It's written down. I think this it, was a I think this was a senior moment. Seriously, he's like, well, and what the Supreme Court says, we'll let it know. Well, you know, but he we're also was do right it by May 15th, we'll do it by May 11th. So we have an orderly thing. Yeah, it was, so was one like, of his what? angry uh, uh, outbursts. You could, you could, in the quality it was a dog face pony soldier moment, right? Yeah, but, but, I, this, but yeah, I, I mean, I kind of thought it was old fashioned buck passing, it was sort of nonsensical. I agree, but but I thought that was the idea here. Basically, the only Democratic politician in America today deferring to the Roberts Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so we're talking about the Hill. We're talking about what's going on on the Hill. You got to listen to Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast this week because he has his guest this week is Mike Gallagher, 
uh, congressman uh, from Wisconsin, who is the uh, chair of the new um, China committee uh, in the House uh, that is focused on examining and fighting back against the threats. Not, by the way, interestingly, from the government of China, but but specifically from the Chinese Communist Party, which is actually the, the CCP is actually named in the name, official name of the committee. Gallagher is one of the most interesting people in American politics. He is a he is a Ph.D. from Georgetown in international affairs. Um, he uh, uh, one of the most thoughtful people on veteran. issues of a veteran uh of course and um and one of the most thoughtful people on matters of uh the military and america's commitments abroad and um oddly enough someone who voted for impeachment and has somehow skated <laughs> um has somehow evaded becoming the um becoming uh, sort of like a a, a whipping boy of the <clears throat> election denier uh wing of the uh, Republican party um in part maybe because of his um because of his very unique set of um you know of credentials uh and so he's very affable he's he's a very. genuinely likable person yes. who doesn't yeah. come so, off as like he's trying to pull you know pull the the wool over your eyes yeah so so he's the guest on 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 Dan Sawyer's call me back podcast this week and they talk about the china committee they talk about what he's going to do wh what the threats are how how to try to make the china committee's efforts bipartisan and a very interesting conversation on how he thinks Kevin McCarthy will manage a maneuver over the course of the next two years with this very small House uh, majority. Um, he's an exciting person in American politics. This is an exciting conversation. If you've never heard him before, you really should listen. If you had heard him before, you will get uh, newly illuminated. That's Dan Sinor's Call Me Back podcast with Mike Gallagher this week. Uh, go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts. Subscribe and listen and be improved. Tevi Troy, you have a piece in the current issue of Commentary commemorating the life and career of uh, Edward I. Koch. So at a time when New York was in the doldrums in the late 1970s, Ed Koch helped turn the city around. There's the famous headline in the New York Daily News, Ford to NY drop dead, which was at a time when New York was in bankruptcy and the previous mayoralty under a beam. And Ed Koch instituted fiscal reforms that helped New York get back to solvency. He was tougher on crime, although there was still crime was still a problem throughout the 80s. But he he started this idea that we needed to push back against crime rather than indulge crime and criminals. And he also gave New York his mojo back. He embraced New York. He said New York was a great city. And he encouraged people to come to New York. He acted like New York was the, the best city in the world. And there's no place you'd rather be than Manhattan, something that got him in trouble when he ran for governor because he made it clear he had no interest in living in Albany or talking to rural or upstate voters. So Ed Koch was kind of a, a New York original. He was one of those urban ethnics, in, in many ways, a Reagan Democrat, although he didn't vote for Reagan. He said, I never voted for Ronald Reagan, but I loved him. And he was also staunchly pro-Israel. And that fits, this fits in with what John was saying about the Daniel Pearl comment on his tombstone. I am a Jew. My father was a Jew. My mother was a Jew. Israel was so important to him. It was central to his view of the world. And he could not stand Democratic politicians who were critical of Israel. And this included Jimmy Carter, who said to Koch, you have done more damage to me than any man in America in 1980. But it also included John Kerry, who in 2004, Ed Koch and I, campaigned together in Florida for George W. Bush against John Kerry. And Koch would say at every stop in Florida, I don't agree with George W. Bush on a single domestic issue, is how he would say it. But I'm voting for George Bush over John Kerry because I think the issues of Israel and terrorism in America's role in the world are more important. So Ed Koch had a bunch of these feuds with other people, including Carter, including Jesse Jackson. A lot of them were informed by his Jewishness. And a lot of the people he feuded with, their reputations have declined in the decade since Koch passed, and I think this should argue for an increase in Koch's reputation. Um, so Ed Koch, um, a fascinating type. So as you said, he was sort of like 
an urban ethnic of a sort that we don't see more. So New York in particular, but other cities had this, uh, New York had a particular coloration because of its very large Jewish community. When Ed Koch Koch was born, lived in New York. In 1950, New York's population was 31% Jewish. It is now about 12%, so it gives you a sense of how things have changed. Jews in the 1970s, when he uh, made his move from Congress to wanting to be in the mayoralty, uh, a million people left New York City between 1970 and 1980, 8 million to 7 million. That was the population decline. And a disproportionate number of those were precisely these white ethnics, Jews and others who moved to Westchester, Nassau County and Suffolk County and New Jersey to get away from a city that was increasingly intolerable and hard to manage and crime ridden and graffiti ridden and broke and wouldn't pick up the garbage and had the schools, which had once been the sort of the glory of the public system in the United States had, had sunk into terrible disrepair from which of course they have never really emerged. And he came along and said, there is nothing that, there is nothing that good governance and high good spirits can't fix about New York. The problem here is that we were doing things wrong and we were approaching our lives in this city wrong. This is a great place. It's fun. We all love being here. There's theater and baseball and football and restaurants and, 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 you know, you can get around on the subway. It's great. And that thing, which is one of the things that he had in common with Reagan, just simply a kind of local patriotism, as opposed to the "we're all in it together." Oh, we're so bro-, you know. I mean, you, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you know, like this thing, which was, I love it here. Don't we all love it here? That's why we're here. We love it here. Had an unbelievable effect. I mean, a startling effect, among other things, on economic development in the city, which had basically, there was none for like 15 years. There was like no building, there were no apartments being built, there were no buildings being renovated, there was very little economic activity in the city except the decline and fall of its manufacturing and all of that. And he came in, deregulated, as Tevi said, changed some of the business atmosphere thing, but also said... This is great build here. And by the time he left office 12 years later, under a terrible cloud, um, you know, and actually having been defeated and uh, having, having uh, you know, sort of had a terrible scandal in his last term, um, no one, he was not implicated in, but sort of the people around the city were, you know, were feeling and then troubles with cops and various other things. But the city was transformed, or Manhattan certainly was transformed in in many ways uh over the course of his his mayoralty in a way that presaged so it kind of was in place he set the conditions in place for when giuliani came in four years after he left office and set the reset the table by fixing the crime wave by ending the crime wave uh the city's infrastructure was ready to be the best city in the world once again and it took almost no time for that to be achieved unfortunately Koch did not enjoy his successor Rudy Giuliani Tevi right well Koch did have a rivalry or a feud with Giuliani like he did with so many others but with Giuliani it was a little different in that interpersonally they got along or when they they saw each other they they would be friendly Uh, but they looked to took pot shots and the pot shots were more designed to see who would have the better legacy as mayor of New York. And interesting, I think Giuliani uh, wins the title as having better legacy as mayor of New York, but better legacy through the, through the through the sands of history. Uh, I think we'll go to Ed Koch because of uh, Giuliani's unfortunate later episodes in in his life. And uh, I, I think that Koch Koch could see through people. I mean, he I think he saw through Donald Trump in a way. Uh, he saw uh, Trump's ego. And he saw Trump's shtick, and he had a, 
a, a bit of a rivalry with him as well. And they also would take pot shots at each other in the paper. And Koch didn't mind it. He didn't mind if people would take shots at him because he'd take shots back. And uh, I think that was kind of his glory. I think I think he respected people who would push back. Uh, interesting, in Maggie Haberman's book on Trump, Confidence Man, she talks a lot about the fight between Koch and Trump. And she says that, yes, they fought, but Trump modeled himself in many, in many ways on Koch and the way Koch kind of made himself ubiquitous in New York. In a time before the internet, in a time before even cable television, I mean, Koch was there. He was in a, you know, there was a Broadway show. He would appear in movies. He was on TV all the time. He was asking, how am I doing? He was greeting people who came across the, the bridge during a, a transit strike and asking everybody how he's doing. So he made himself central to the lives of New Yorkers in a way that just wasn't normal for a, a mayor to do. And I think he created a model for future politicians to follow. He's also, can I just add that to the to, to that point, which is really important to remember when you think about some of the big city Democratic mayors now, uh, he, his, he started his first term in 1977, I think, right? And that was also the year that the I Heart New York logo, you know, the, the Milton Glaser now in famous, you know, sort of symbol, um, this love of your city, flaws and all, but with an emphasis on what you love about it. We've kind of lost that in our in, in the 21st century, right? Big city mayors tend to be people like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, who talk endlessly about all of the structural racism, and this is bad, and that's bad, while not actually solving the problems of her city, and not really celebrating it in the same way. There's always these caveats to why a city is good. It's a, more of a focus on the problems. And he was somehow able to manage to talk about the city's problems while still having that love. And it was a kind of, in contrast to, to Trump, who I think you're right, mimicked those those um, abilities, but for his own ego gratification. Koch did it because kind of like a father figure, right? It's like, here's my city. I want to protect it. I want everyone to be happy. I, I want everyone to love it like I do. Yeah, you mentioned Lightfoot. Uh, but I, I think another comparator is to de Blasio who mm -hmm. seemed to hate New York. I mean, he wasn't yes. even a Yankees fan. He was a Red Sox fan. And he didn't <laughs> seem to like the people in New York. He didn't really want to be mayor. He just wanted to uh, go, go to the gym and, um, you know, do his extracurricular uh, smoking activities. So uh, de Blasio hated New York in a way that Koch loved it. And but, it was interesting know, that John mentioned Reagan earlier. Yeah. Reagan also loved America, was able to mm -hmm. call out flaws. But I think both Koch and Reagan had this love of their place, whether it was the country or the city. And I think that's what made people love them. But I think there's a larger point here, which is that de Blasio hated New York because he hates America. I mean, Lori Lightfoot can't be a Chicago partisan because she doesn't like American society. And Chicago is a feature of it. And American society has to be revolutionized because of structural racism and evil. And Ed Koch was a patriot. He had a moment in his career. He was he was a Greenwich Village Democrat. He lived in the heart of Greenwich Village. He represented Greenwich Village. And there were two political models to follow in this city that he was one course of, which is why he was a neoconservative, even though he never became a Republican. There was him. He was a progressive village Democrat, but he didn't like where the, the left in the 60s was going. And the other person was Bella Abzug, a communist, communist front official, head of Women's Strike for Peace, which was a communist front organization who uh, unexpectedly and amazingly actually made her way into the Congress. And you had these two models, Jews, New York Jews, very ethnic, un unmistakably, characteristically, almost like cartoon Ver, you know, like sitcom Jews. Uh, but she hated America and he loved America. And when he loved America, that also meant that he loved he could love New York because he loved America. That's why he loved Reagan. He didn't like Reagan's domestic policies, though. I got to be honest. I don't believe that to be the case. And I also don't believe he didn't like Bush's domestic. He was basically he was basically a down the line neocon. He like much of. New York's intellectual class could have gone the other way and could have moved to the left and been a figure on the left and something stopped him. And I actually think that was another key thing that made him a neocon six day war, Israel, the UN and, uh, and uh, radical black hostility expressed in New York city in particular toward Jews. That was the Ocean Hill Brownsville strike. 
city uh, teacher strike of 1968, which had uh, figures in uh, in sort of activist teaching mode dancing around coffins in Central Park with um, with Mug and David's on them and stuff like that. He saw that he saw the ideological war on Israel and something was triggered in him that never stopped. He wasn't religious. He wasn't a religious Jew, though he had a he had a, he had a famous seder in his apartment every year. Um, and he, and that's also of a piece, right? Uh, it is you know loving America, loving New York, loving Israel, and therefore he was unique and created a whole new world again of mayors and stuff because he kind of had a foreign policy. He was like a mayor with a foreign policy. Hey, well, I just want to add in here. Yeah. Um, he contributed to commentary in a very small way. In well, I don't I don't mean to diminish it by saying small. I just mean in 2010 we had a symposium on Obama and Israel, uh, and he contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he was a very tricky uh person, personally. Tevi seems to have liked him. I found him personally intolerable. He was a he was a he was a person who could not speak about anybody he was he was by the time i knew him well in the 90s he was solipsistic in a way that few people i've ever met ever were he had no idea that anybody else was alive uh everything was a psychodrama in his own head and yet um he was an amazing public figure and uh the turnaround in new york uh, it, that began under him in 1977 not only presaged, uh, you know, the revival of New York in the 90s, but kind of presaged Reagan in a lot of ways. He was a happy warrior. He was a cheerful, upbeat, peppy presence. He wasn't dragged down by the difficulties of the job. He wasn't, he liked it. He liked what he did. He liked where he was. And he had an absolute self-confidence about, that's why I say he had this foreign policy, like, he didn't care that he was a mayor and shouldn't be talking about, you know, Israel and Palestine and stuff like that. He talked about whatever he wanted to talk about. The largest city in America, you know, center of the economic, you know, system of the West uh, on Wall Street and stuff like that. And he just took advantage of whatever of, of whatever he whatever he needed to take advantage of. And this connection to his people um just very startling. Like it was very, it was very, it was, it, it availed him. I mean, it made him beloved to Jews, but you know, Jews were a shrinking population in the city. He ended up having a very hostile relationship with the African American community in the city that contributed to his, you know, to his decline. Uh, but he had it because basically he knew and understood that Al Sharpton was evil and that these people were disgusting and that they were, they were fomenting racial, um, tensions and creating crime and 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 making things worse not better for not only for the people that they were fighting with but within the black community itself and he had no compunction about he he couldn't tailor his he couldn't um he just he didn't have it in him to tailor his views to what was politically expedient for him in an odd way his solipsism served him well in that respect, which is that he was always right about everything and he had no problem harming himself in some ways by asserting the right, because he was right about a lot of the things that he thought he was right about. That was really good. Let, let me make a couple of quick points on this. First of all, John, you're totally right. They had a huge ego. The joke was that the I and Edward I. Koch stood for his favorite personal pronoun. But I kind of found it a little charming. You kind of know what you're dealing with when when you you went to see him. And he would talk for a long time about himself, but he, he had great stories. The second thing, and this is really important about the Black community, and I mentioned this in my article in the February commentary, which is he went hammer and tongs after Jesse Jackson in, in 1988 in the Democratic primary in New York when Jesse Jackson and Michael Dukakis and Al Gore were running for that primary. And Koch would could not abide Jackson because Jackson had, first of all, said Jaime Town, which is a slur against Jews, and was very staunchly anti-Israel at a time when the rest of the Democratic Party was not as critical of Israel as it is today. And Koch saw that as a threat, and he pushed very hard back against Jackson. His preferred candidate, Gordon, win. Neither did Jackson. Dukakis won that primary, and he won the nomination. But I think 
even Koch recognized that he went a little too far in how hard he went after Jackson. And I think that hurt him in that 1989 Democratic primary against Dinkins, David Dinkins, who was African-American, and he won a very large share of the African-American vote. And that's what ended up ending Koch's tenure in office. I mean, he said that he went too far because Gore convinced him that he went too far because Gore was a coward and a sniveling coward and wouldn't go after Jackson directly with hammer and tongs. And it was Koch who said, you, you know, if you're a Jew, you would be crazy to vote for Jesse Jackson, which became a huge scandal, but was correct. In fact, any Jew who voted for Jesse Jackson, an out-and-out anti-Semite, you know, deserves all the obloquy that they you can possibly, you know, keep on their heads. He was right. <clears throat> Gore was a chicken, lost the primary, uh, showed the same kind of uh, weird character that he would show, you know, for much of his much of his career. But uh, Koch arguably won the primary for Dukakis. I mean, I don't think Jackson could have won New York State, but um, certainly Koch did a lot to despite having elevated him and made the fight, oh, how can you say this about the first major African-American candidate for office? That's what I'm saying. Ed Koch didn't care that Jesse Jackson was a trailblazing African-American running for office. He was a filthy anti-Semite. He deserved to be criticized. He deserved to be ad hominemed. He did it. He then was sorry because his guy didn't win. But time has... Again, as Tevi said, time, I think, is will be kind to that because it was like, oh, he didn't trim his sails. He didn't he wasn't politic. Well, history doesn't care who's politic and who's not politic. History cares where you were on, on you know, at moments of crisis at any given moment. And Koch fought for a Democratic Party that would not be dominated by people like Jesse Jackson, and that was good for the Democratic Party since four years later, Bill Clinton, who was essentially in some many ways an anti-Jesse Jackson, got the party's nomination and won won the presidency. Um, anyway, everybody should read Tevi's piece. I am heartsick to say that I do not remember the actual title that we put on it as I am now in my 60s. Tevi, what is the actual name? What? Ed Koch, 10 years gone. 10 years gone. Okay, so that is at commentary.org. It's in your issue if you're a subscriber, which, of course, you should be. And if you're not, shame on you. I'm not going to say that you're as bad as Jesse Jackson, but I'm getting there. If you've been listening to this podcast day in, day out, and you're not subscribing, you're not as bad as Jesse Jackson. But there are moral issues that are raised by your um, sort of hitchhiking without ever paying for the gas. So go pay for the gas, subscribe to Commentary, support the podcast, support the magazine, support Tevi Troy's article, Ed Koch, 10 Years Gone. Thank you for coming on, Tevi. And for Abe, Christina, and I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.